Welcome back to the penultimate episode of Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind, ASCO edition. Like any great series, it always has to come to a grinding halt, but we're not done just yet. Today, Michael and myself, Josh, will be discussing head and neck and melanoma, two pivotal areas of research, interesting changes afoot, and definitely some paradigm shifts coming our way. Michael, welcome back. How are you? I'm good, Josh, and you're exactly right. We've got a hell of a a double header, pun slightly intended, today, and a tumor stream that has obviously got a significant amount of importance for us in our homeland of Australia, where we have some of the highest rates of melanoma in the world. And we also have significantly high rates of head and neck cancer, owing to a strong uh, Southeast Asian population, as well as uh, lots of incidences of metastatic squamous and basal cell carcinoma. But let's start with melanoma, because this has been an area that was once the bell of the ball with uh, immunotherapy, BRAF inhibition, it was the ultimate success story for oncology, and it's sort of slowed down somewhat since then. Nevertheless, there are a couple of studies that we would like to talk about, and as always, there are studies that we've missed, but we will always come back to on our website at inquisitiveonc.com. But the first study is a study of LAG3 and anti-PD-1. Now, this has sort of been done in the Relativity 047 trial, but the reason we're focusing on this one is it attempts to address, in a very small cohort, the current major question of PD-1 inhibition and immunotherapy writ large, which is can you rechallenge after failure of PD-1 therapy in the adjuvant setting? So this remains very uncertain. It remains uncertain in melanoma and across cancers as a whole. Fianlimab is an anti-LAG3 and semiplimab is an anti-PD-1. These are the agents under investigation in this study. Previously presented data for this study has demonstrated significantly longer PFS compared to anti-PD-1 monotherapy in advanced melanoma. This was the Relativity 047 trial, obviously slightly different agents, but same targets. In that study, the overall response rate was 43% for relatlimab plus nivolumab versus 33% for nivolumab alone. The study uh, presented updated data and efficacy focusing on a subset of patients that had had previous exposure to anti-PD-1 in the adjuvant setting. So the study is made up of three serial expansion cohorts. Now, important to note that these are not cohorts being compared to one another. There is no statistical comparison. This is purely a small early phase study to look for an efficacy signal. So cohort number one comprised of 40 people and enrolled patients with either first line or second line advanced melanoma, eight of which had prior adjuvant therapy. A second confirmatory cohort enrolled patients only in first line advanced melanoma, again, 40 patients. And then there was a cohort that enrolled patients who had failed adjuvant therapy. And 13 out of 23 patients in this cohort had received previous PD-1. That is the selling point of this study. The primary endpoint was overall response rate, and the secondary endpoints were PFS, duration of response, disease control rate, safety, and pharmacokinetics. Important to note that this study excluded patients with uveal melanoma. We know that uveal melanoma is pretty much a completely different clinical entity to standard melanoma, as well as patients who had had prior LAG3 treatment and radiotherapy. 
the demographics were well balanced across the three cohorts. In terms of the results, look, I will summarise the results of cohorts one and two by saying that the overall response rate was 63% and the disease control rate was 80%, which compares favourably to historical controls in relativity and also Checkmate 067 that tested ipilimumab and nivolumab. However, Cohort 3 is the arm that we really want to focus on. This is the post-adjuvant treatment. Now, as I mentioned, 13 out of 23 patients had previous PD-1. The majority of the remainder had anti-BRAF therapy in the adjuvant setting, and a handful of patients had other therapies such as interferon. In the overall population of Cohort 3, the overall response rate was 61% with a progression-free survival, a median progression-free survival of 13 months. The duration of response was not reached. If we drill down into patients who specifically had anti-PD-1 therapy, and again, this is only 13 patients, so take it with with a bit of grain of salt, the overall response rate was 62% with a PFS of 12 months. Again, the duration of response was not reached. A note about this subselection of patients, then this was examined in in the discussion after the actual presentation that 15% of these patients had elevated LDH. Now, LDH in melanoma, for those who don't know, is a very crude tumour marker, and an LDH above the upper limit of a laboratory normal range is considered a poor prognostic sign or a sign of uh, more aggressive disease. However, when you think about it, because these are patients post-adjuvant treatment, they're going to be followed up very closely, and so it might be the case where we catch these recurrences earlier. So patients in the real world may also have a normal LDH. So it's not as big a a hole as it sounds. There was clinical activity in patients with poor prognostic disease. We mentioned the elevated LDH, but also patients with liver mets and M1C disease. Uh, The safety of the combination was consistent with previous studies. However, there was noted high rates of adrenal insufficiency at 11%. So in conclusion... Fianlimab and semiplimab is a promising combination of immunotherapy, specifically in patients who have failed anti-PD-1. And we're hoping that rechallenging of PD-1, it's at least in Australia, heavily restrictive. We're hoping that, that we will begin to see a lot more real-world clinical data with regards to rechallenging with these agents. The cohorts demonstrated consistent and reproducible clinical activity in three independent non-comparative cohorts, and activity was also seen in poor prognosis subgroups. However, obviously there are a number of limitations with this study, mainly the small numbers and the non-comparative nature of the study. So beyond the fact that there is a good chance that it will work, this combination, we can't exactly say how much, we can't compare it to other agents, you can do some dirty cross-trial comparisons, but there is a signal that is worth pursuing. And to that end, there are phase three trials with this combination that are ongoing both in the adjuvant and metastatic setting. Would be interesting to see if they do any studies in the neoadjuvant setting, because that's sort of where oncology is headed. But nevertheless, an interesting study and one that hopefully supports and adds to the growing evidence that PD-1 rechallenge is possible. You already answered all my questions, Michael, so I'm not going to reissue them. But yes, rechallenging with immunotherapy and having good efficacy rates is an oncologist's dream. Moving on to another trial called Keynote 942, also in the melanoma sphere, cutaneous melanoma specifically, looking at resected stage 3B 
C, D, or stage 4. So the background of this trial, despite efficacy of adjuvant therapy, high relapse rates suggest more can be done to prevent disease relapse. Enter the new contender, mRNA4157, a novel mRNA-based personalized cancer vaccine encoding up to 34 patient-specific tumor neoantigens. That's precision oncology if I've ever seen anything. So individual sequencing, turnaround time was about six weeks. They were given three weekly dosings up to nine doses and pembrolizumab from cycle three. So Keynote 942 had already met its primary endpoints of recurrence-free survival in patients with resected melanoma with a hazard ratio of 0.561. Note, both recurrence-free survival and distant metastases-free survival have also been evaluated as surrogates for overall survival. That's a whole conversation in itself, Michael. So the, the distant metastases-free survival captures patients whose relapse is associated with worse prognosis. Key eligibility criteria, people with melanoma, cutaneous, resected stage 3 or metastatic, resected within 30, 13 weeks, disease-free at study entry and a good ECOG performance status. Randomized 2 to 1 with the primary endpoint of recurrence-free survival and secondary endpoint everything else I've just discussed. When looking at the recurrence-free survival, it was statistically significant with a hazard ratio of 0.561, an 18-month recurrence-free survival of 78.6% versus 62.2%. Relapse rate in control arm appears to match that of prior data of Keynote 054, study for stage 3 subset. Looking at the distant metastases-free survival, the hazard ratio was an astounding 0.347, so 65% more effective with the statistical p-value, and the 18-month distant metastases-free survival was 91.8% versus 76.8%. That is astronomically good. Recurrence locations and patterns majority was local regional relapse in the combination arm, and the majority of relapses occurred early, which is interesting. The correlation between distant metastases-free survival and by ctDNA positivity show their positivity appearance appears to portend worse outcomes. Appears to be better in the combination arm, but only small numbers here. Toxicity, 25% had grade 3 treatment-related adverse events with fatigue, pyrexia, and myalgia winning that cup. So in conclusion, they met the primary and secondary endpoints. There's significant improvement on an already very good treatment. And an ongoing analysis and longer follow-up to evaluate eligibility is ongoing. There are some limitations, Michael, including the main question is, does the overall survival truly correlate with recurrence-free survival and distance metastases-free survival? There's some cross-trial evidence, and I guess the question is this, could we use this as a surrogate or do we need to do further trials? When you look at recurrence-free survival interval, it does cross the line of equivalence, which is a very interesting side point, despite being statistically significant. But ongoing questions remain identification of dominant neoantigens and number of antigens required for efficacy. Can we narrow the focus to simplify technology or broaden the focus to enhance efficacy? Like this is putting your arm in a Star Trek machine, them reading your DNA, telling you what you need, and then essentially your rates of cure and control are so much higher. What an incredible trial, and I'm excited to see the future of this technology. It may as well be something from Star Trek. It really is incredible because basically they, th this is, as you said, Josh, personalized 
oncology. This is our dream. We're, we're not just doing a off-the-shelf treatment. This actually, they actually take samples from individuals' melanoma and spin it down and identify specific uh, neoantigens. And the turnaround time for this is six weeks. So that's the other thing is that um, when I heard that, I thought, well, you know, you're going to have people who recur early, who have bad disease and all that sort of stuff, but they actually start the Pembro, you get three cycles, and then they start with the uh, with the vaccination. So it's a really, really fascinating study. And, and like you, I really look forward to where it goes. Let's, let's uh, flip the switch, as it were, and go from melanoma to head and neck, which is another area where sequencing and new therapies is really starting to explode. So the next study that we're going to talk about is the continuum study, and this was actually a late-breaking abstract. The background is that locally advanced nasopharyngeal cancer account for about 75% of all NPC cases, and we've got a pretty good treatment for this. Induction chemotherapy of a platinum plus gemcitabine, two or three cycles, ideally three for high-risk disease, followed by concurrent chemoradiotherapy. Despite this good treatment, about 20% of patients develop disease recurrence or metastases, and the majority are distant. Interestingly, at a cellular level, PDL1 is expressed in 90% of tumor cells in nasopharyngeal cancer, so it is a highly immunogenic cancer. Three large randomized controlled trials has demonstrated the efficacy of PD1 inhibition in first line recurrent or metastatic NPC, specifically the Jupiter 01, the Captain First, and the Rationale 309 study. Continuum, however, did the logical step, as we always seem to be saying these days, in terms of sequencing, and examined the addition of immunotherapy in the definitive setting. And interestingly, the, the presenter of this abstract, Dr. Ma from Sun Yat-sen University Cancer Center, was actually one of the authors, one of the main authors of the original induction chemo arm. So we're dealing with a with a world expert here. The inclusion criteria, patients had to have stage 3 to 4A nasopharyngeal cancer, but they specifically excluded low-risk T3 to 4 node-negative tumors or T3N1 disease. Patients were randomized one-to-one to receive standard of care, which is the induction plus uh, chemoradiotherapy, plus or minus scintillimab, which is an anti-PD, anti-PD-1 immunotherapy. Scintillimab was given every three weeks for 12 total cycles, so patients got three cycles before the chemorads, two cycles with the chemorads, and then six cycles afterwards. So overall, you're looking at a longer duration of treatment for patients than current standard of care. The question is, does it actually help? The primary endpoint was event-free survival with the standard cornucopia of secondary endpoints, specifically overall survival, loco-regional recurrence-free survival, distant metastases-free survival, toxicity, quality of life, and some exploratory biomarkers including pdl one CPS, and EBV DNA, which I don't believe were presented at ASCO, so we await those results. In terms of the results that we do have, though, the median follow-up was 41.9 months, and incredibly, 94% of patients in the whole study were alive at three years. In terms of the demographics, greater than 70% of patients had stage 4 disease, 90% of patients had a T3 or T4 primary, and 80% of patients had N2 or N3 disease, so high-risk patients. 
71% of patients completed centilimab treatment, with the major reason for discontinuation being patient refusal, which is where that longer duration of therapy might be coming into it, as well as adverse events. 76% of patients in the centilimab group versus 80% in the control arm received a cumulative cisplatin dose of greater than 200 milligrams per meter squared, and that is sort of the threshold past which we think that chemoradiotherapy with cisplatin is at its most effective. In terms of the outcomes, it is a almost clean sweep for the centilimab group with one notable exception. The three-year event-free survival had a hazard ratio of 0.59, distant metastases-free survival, hazard ratio of 0.57, local regional recurrence-free survival, hazard ratio of 0.52, all statistically significant. But what is the big one of those that is missing? That's right, overall survival. And the hazard ratio for the three-year overall survival was 0.95, with a p-value of 0.89. Clean sweep, and then Centilimab appears to stumble right at the end. Having said that, this is probably a comment less on the effectiveness of centilimab and more on the effectiveness of the pre-existing treatments. It's the old breast cancer question. In terms of toxicity, grade 3 to 4 adverse events were more frequent in the centilimab group, 74 versus 65%, with the most common in the investigative arm being rash, pruritus, thyroid axis derangement, LFT derangement, and LFT derangement. There was also twice the rate of chemotherapy discontinuation during chemo rads, 12% versus 6.5%. So it is a slightly more toxic regimen. So in conclusion, for continuum, there is a significant reduction in recurrence rates, but no benefit at three years in overall survival. And this is why, again, coming back to the previous keynote study, we can never assume that a benefit in distant metastases-free survival or for recurrence-free survival will translate into an overall survival benefit. Toxicity was manageable, but noticeably higher in the centilimab arm. The authors were saying that longer follow-up was required, but I do wonder how many recurrences you're going to get if you are disease-free at three years. We're still waiting on the data on plasma EBV DNA and pdl one but whether this is a biomarker that we can potentially use to select the higher-risk patients will remain to be seen. As always, though, we are looking at a potential new standard of care. It seems ASCO is throwing these out left, right, and center, but moving immunotherapy into the first line for nasopharyngeal cancer is definitely something that may be on the horizon. Definitely maybe, in summary. I'm pretty sure that's a song. Definitely maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely about air, it's fine. Uh, That was really interesting. I've done a systematic review looking at head and neck cancers, and in the definitive setting, there's pretty much not a lot. Um, from an immunotherapy standpoint. So this is this is cool. It is something that I think we'll see because, as, as we said, we know immunotherapy works in the majority, particularly nasopharyngeal cancers in the majority of advanced cases. It will be interesting to see the final sort of five, seven, ten-year outcomes for Continuum. And hopefully we get that. The next trial and final on our show today is the DEPEND trial. D-E-P-E-N-D. So the background of this trial is that survival of locally, local regionally advanced HPV negative head and neck squamous cell carcinoma remains poor. Five-year overall survival is 50%. Standard therapy associated with substantial acute and late treatment-related toxicity. 
anti-PD-1 immunotherapy with or without chemotherapy improves survival in recurrence or metastatic setting. The response following neoadjuvant chemotherapy is prognostic and may allow patients selective for treatment de-escalation. Love a good treatment de-escalation. This may reduce toxicity and spare elective nodal radiation. So the DEPEND trial is neoadjuvant nivolumab, paclitaxel, and carboplatin, followed by a response-stratified chemoradiotherapy in the head and neck squamous cell population. Inclusion criteria had to have locally advanced stage 4A or 4B, mucosal squamous cell carcinoma of the oropharynx, hypopharynx, nasopharynx, larynx, sinuses, good ECOG status, 38 patients were included, and they were given either neoadjuvant nivolumab with carbo and paclitaxel by three cycles, followed by a radiographic response. If there was less than a 50% response, they went to standard chemoradiotherapy, and if they had more than a 50% response, they had adapted chemoradiotherapy, which was less radiotherapy. So that would be about 75 gray versus 66 gray. This was followed by consolidation with nivolumab every four weeks for up to nine cycles. So primary endpoint, Michael, was deep response rate, proportion of patients with greater than 50% tumor response, and secondary endpoints, all the other fun stuff I say every time, overall survival, progression-free survival, local regional control, distant control, safety, disease status, just put it in there, just nominate what you want to do. Demographics are majority heavy smokers and 40% had T4 disease and 80% had N2 or N3 disease. 50% had a PDL one combined CPS score of greater than or equal to one. The results showed this. So the deep response rate was 54%. The objective response rate was 89%. And the response rate was higher in patients with higher PDL1 levels. CPS of greater than or equal to 20 trended towards greater benefit than those with a CPS of less than 20, although not statistically significant. The outcomes in the intention to treat PFS was 24 at 24 months was 64%, and overall survival at 24 months was 76%. So pretty good numbers. The outcome response stratified, the 79% were in the response stratified cohort versus. 46% in the standard. So when you've de-escalated and they've had a good response, you're going to get a better progression-free survival. And if you look at the overall survival, it was 86 versus 67%, favoring the patients who had the dose de-escalation. The local regional control at 24 months was 85 versus 92%, and the distant control at 24 months, Michael, do you know how much it was? <laughs> Well, yes, I do, because I've got the notes here, but I'll let you actually um, say the number. 100%. Never get 100%. This is 100%. And you should rate and subscribe if you're liking this episode. First, 63% in the control group. The toxicity was well tolerated. 69% had grade 1 to 2 peripheral neuropathy and 6% had neutropenia. So what's the conclusion? Potent this is a potential for treatment de-escalation based on deep response rate following neoadjuvant chemo IO. It's associated with favor favorable surgical and local regional control with a reduction in radiotherapy volume and dose. The deep response rate with neoadjuvant treatment was 54%, and this may correlate with CPS levels. But that's a lot of our trials. You kind of see higher CPS. There's a correlation towards better response. 
but there are, as always, questions that remain. It's a small cohort. We need a bigger study. We need a, a more of a control arm as well, potentially, although they de-escalate us and maybe that's how you would do it again. There is significant heterogeneity among cancers. For example, nasopharyngeal and laryngeal cancers are very different disease entities. Just do some subtypes benefit over others? Is there one subtype showing all these positive responses and thus we have this outcome? I don't know. And I would need to go through the specific trial and the specific schema that they had. We need longer follow-up, as I just said, and larger studies. The end. You can remove the end from our The end. end. <laughs> All right. The end, it's exciting. And, 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 you know, this is another de-escalation because radiotherapy sucks, man. It's just, it's hard to get through. It is. And especially when it is aimed at the head and neck, I often say to patients to illustrate it is like having the sun blasted at your face it, it can be very very uh very very morbid very very um uh, painful and obviously toxicities can be significant it was uh, interesting that the specialist that ended up doing the discussion on this study was actually himself a radiation oncologist and he said something along the lines of oh, i was warned about these sorts of studies i'm going to be made redundant definitely not there yet radiotherapy for all of its uh, toxicities, is still the cornerstone of treatment of head and neck cancer. But if we can select patients that don't need as much, then that is always that is always a good thing. That's it, Michael. And what are we doing tomorrow for our final exciting ASCO finale? Well, Josh, we are almost there. Tomorrow is the last episode, and we do sincerely thank you all for sticking with us, not just for this series, but for more than 50 episodes of Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind. We couldn't do this without you, so thank you so much for tuning in. And we have saved the best for last. There was not one, there was not two, there were three studies that were given plenary status at ASCO in the medical oncology space. There was Indigo for astrocytoma. There was Adora for lung cancer. And there was Prospect for rectal cancer. So we will take a deep dive into all three of them and give you our take on the best of the best of ASCO. We'll see you tomorrow. See you then, Michael. Thank you for listening to Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind. You'll find previous episodes on our website, along with weekly posts, resources, and links to our Twitter and LinkedIn pages. Check it out at inquisitiveonc.com. That's inquisitiveonc.com. <laughs> <laughs>